Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and today I am continuing the book review that never ends. Uh, We are covering The Lives of Bees by Thomas Seeley and this week I will be going through chapter 8. Now, I know that last episode I said that I was going to hunker down and get two chapters done. That didn't happen. Um, it's just it's just too much maths for me to process and type up without my brain melting out my ears. So I'm afraid that um, it looks like moving forward, it's going to be one chapter at a time, unless by some miracle they end up being very, very short. So I have started on chapter nine, but I didn't want to rush it and end up missing out information that's really critical to understanding the, um, the source material. So today we're going to stick with chapter eight, which is all about food collection. And as always, before I get into the nitty gritty, um, I'm going to give just a couple of, of homestead updates. So the first thing I wanted to talk about is um, my antidepressant medication change. So if this is something that you don't want to hear about, just skip forward a couple of minutes. It's it's real quick. There's nothing that should be triggering for anyone with depression. Um, I'm just, uh, I made a switch about um, three weeks ago now, I think, maybe four, where I moved off an SNRI onto an SSRI. Um, And I had felt that the SNRI was basically overstimulating my brain. So I was increasingly irritable. Um, I had found out I couldn't increase the dosage without becoming like miserably cranky all the time. So I was kind of stuck at the dosage I was at. And um, I just felt you know, not quite right. And with everything going on, it seemed like a good time to make a change. You know, I have a good support system. Um, I'm at home. No one is inflicted with my crankiness aside from my husband. (laughs) But, you know, I try not to take it out on him. So I made the change and um, it really made a huge difference. Uh, The first thing that we did is, you know, as a lot of you who are on antidepressants probably know, you cannot just stop taking a lot of them you have to decrease slowly with the one I was on we cut the dose in half and then started a low dose of the new med at the same time and just cutting the dosage in half made such a big difference a lot of my irritability cleared up um I started sleeping better because I was really struggling to sleep well uh, it was just a really big change and then I noticed as well that like I was singing along to music for the first time in ages. I started dancing like randomly. I just would have these moments where I was in the middle of something and I just felt this incredible feeling of joy or peace or like a lot of positive emotions. And um, I think I realized making the med change that as much as the SNRI was like overstimulating parts of my brain. So I was very irritable. I was very cranky. And also I think kind of on edge and anxious in general, I think it was numbing other things. So it's been really, really nice to experience like these great happy emotions. And it's not that I was miserable before, but it's just is such a shift. It feels like the emotions are a lot clearer and I'm really happy with it. So um, 
Yes, if anyone out there is also on antidepressants and has been considering a medication change, but something was holding you back, you know, discuss it with your your healthcare providers, um, you know, get their feedback and give it a go because it worked out great for me. Um, I think the previous medication I was on, I want to say the name brand is Effexa. The drug name is Deloxetine and I've switched over to Escitalopram, the brand name of which is called Lexapro. And um, it's known for helping with sleep disorders as well, which is awesome because like I said, I'm having a hard time sleeping. Now I sleep a lot better. And even if I don't get a lot of sleep, when I wake up, I actually feel like I had quality sleep. So it's made a huge difference for me. And I'm really appreciative that I I did it and as always I'm kind of looking back and like oh why didn't I do this sooner but you know it is what it is so that out of the way as for what else is going on here at home uh, I finally started weeding the front beds like it got to a point where I couldn't ignore it anymore and I do put mulch down every year and mulching the beds has helped so much on keeping weeds back when we bought the house um three years ago it was just almost solid weeds by the time we moved in and um what was great is the previous owner didn't spray and that's part of why the weeds took over and I loved that because if she had sprayed I wouldn't have been able to feed any of the weeds to my animals for at least two years to make sure that um, any of the chemicals that remain in the plants and in the ground had um, dispersed. So that was awesome, but it did mean that um, I had to do everything by hand and it took me a very, very long time. But And every year though, after applying mulch, is a little less every year that I have to weed. So this year, it actually went by surprisingly quickly. I had my mulch delivery mulch delivery day is a great day here I love mulch Um, I get like a natural wood mulch I'm very blessed to have a local company that produces really good quality wood mulch with no chemicals additive fertilizers nothing added to it it has almost no like miscellaneous waste products in it which can be a downside of some mulching companies and they haven't increased their prices in like two and a half years bless their heart so I'm just really grateful when they deliver and it's just awesome so I love them I might drop actually their name their website in the episode description and the very least on the blog so that anyone local can um, take advantage of um, their great service because I've I really appreciate them And speaking of mulch, if you follow my Instagram, you'll see that I finally covered up the gravel path in my back garden and covered it with mulch and stepping stones. And this is something that I have been meaning to do for coming on two years. So I'm really glad it's done. And the reason I did it is that the gravel was really annoying because it still had a ton of weeds growing in it. And so it ended up looking not very good. It was very difficult to weed. And on top of that, the gravel has slowly been migrating as it's wont to do into the lawn. So sometimes when I'm mowing, I'd kick up gravel. And I was really worried that one day, you know, I'd kick it up and it would like crack my glasses or even worse, it would like hit one of my dogs or something. So it was something I wanted to do. And I moved a lot of it. I, I actually dug up and hauled 50% of the gravel into the back of the property and I ended up using it around the um the 
chicken coops this year to help with uh, soil erosion from like rain runoff. And once it was low enough, then I covered it with the mulch and I put the stepping stones back down. So I know I'm going to have to remulch it every year and there is still going to be some weeding, but I anticipate it being a lot easier to deal with. I also had to do a big clear up of my tomato plants. So I kind of abandoned them aside from watering them every day I just kind of left them to it and um, they just went kind of crazy and the stakes that I was using ended up not being strong enough to hold them in place so they're all kind of like keeling over and it was just a mess so I finally bought new stakes I went in I had to cut a lot of leaves from low down the stem off I got rid of a lot of um just sort of general leaf debris I had blossom end rot on a number of the tomatoes I actually ended up taking those tomatoes off and then I got bone meal that I put down um, to help with the blossom end rot and I generally just sort of sorted them out restaked them and I increased the soil level um, because I felt that I hadn't planted them deep enough and since then they look a lot better and a number of the tomatoes are finally starting to turn red. And in the meantime, I'm very fortunate because my next door neighbor's tomato plants have gone absolutely bonkers. And she's just been giving me shopping bags full of tomatoes, which is great because I love them. Um, so I'm very lucky to have that. I'm very appreciative. I've also been painting my last hive supers that need to get ready um, I've got one side of a super left. I literally ran out of paint right before that last side. So I've got some more paint. And, um, oh, and for my birthday, I got a top bar hive and I am in the process of putting that together. And then the lid of that needs to be painted. And then I'm going to put it out and I'm going to see if it attracts any swarms. But I mean, I'm not holding my breath, but I'd rather have it out there than just sort of taking up space in the um, the garage. So speaking of bees and hives, um, I'm four for four on Queens this year. So again, if you follow my Instagram, you might have seen the news that when I split my Saskatraz hive, you know, I moved the queen and half of the hive to one location and I left the queenless section in the original spot. And last time I updated, I mentioned that I had seen that um, a queen had emerged, but I hadn't seen a virgin queen in there. And I was hoping that she was off doing her mating flight. Well, it's been a while since I've been able to get back in because of all the robbing behavior that I've had here. But I went out on a kind of a cooler morning and I didn't go into any of the honey supers. I just quickly peeked in on a number of brood boxes and I was absolutely delighted to not just find eggs and new brood in my previously queenless split, but I actually found the queen. She's absolutely stunning. She is chonky. Her abdomen is big. She's laying beautifully like her her mother and I'm just so delighted and I, I'm not sure that I'm ever going to get over that feeling of finding a queen like knowing that your hive not just raised a queen but that she went out she dealt with all that predation that could happen when she's out on her mating flights and then she came back and 
she's laying beautifully and she's building the next generations of bees and it just I it never is it's never going to get old for me I absolutely love it so that's four of four colonies that have raised their own queens this year I absolutely am so grateful I love my bees I hadn't been in for so long and I was just so grateful to see them I did a couple of quick changes as well so because I couldn't go through the hives as thoroughly as I wanted to to check for like swarming behavior lack of space or sort of signs of problems uh, some of the stuff that I did is I just tried to look at a brood box or two if I could just to see you know what does the pattern look like are they backfilling have they stopped laying eggs because sometimes when it's very hot and there's not any nectar coming in the queen will stop laying and that's that is normal um but actually from what I've seen everyone all my queens are still laying um some of them in particular actually have just stunning brood patterns at maybe even better than they did in the spring it's it's really something to see um but what I did do was I had queen excluders on because of uh, wanting to extract honey this year. And I decided to take those off because even though we should be getting a full flow uh, when the goldenrod starts to bloom in my area, uh, right now, because I can't get in there, I want them to have as much space as possible. But the only frames that I have to give them are just foundation frames. There's, there's no wax built on them. And because of the dearth, they won't be building wax now. So in order to make space, I'm either going to need to extract honey frames, which is a terrible idea to do in the dearth because it's definitely going to cause robbing. Or I, if I take the queen excluders off those hives, the queen can move up. If there is space above, she can go up there and she can lay eggs. So that's what I did. Um, so fingers crossed that's going to work. I am cautiously optimistic about the... Uh, oncoming flow because I saw on some of my local groups that counties near mine already have goldenrod we don't yet that I've seen but I'm keeping an eye out Um, but I have seen the girls bringing in a lot of pollen like massive pollen pants on some of these girls so there are things in bloom but it's the nectar that we're waiting for. And I know there's still a dearth because the bees have found my hummingbird feeders and hummingbird nectar is, um, so if the spring mix that I make for my bees is uh, one part sugar to two parts water, and then you dilute it again uh, for the hummingbirds. So hummingbirds, I think it ends up being one part sugar to uh, four parts water. So usually the bees don't notice the feeders at all because it's just not sweet enough, but they are all over the feeders this past week. And actually a couple of the hummingbirds have been getting mad and like fighting the honeybees off. And it's been quite funny to watch, but, um, oh, and that actually reminds me for those of you in areas where there are hummingbirds, do keep feeding right now because the nectar dearth affects the hummingbirds as well. And the hummingbirds are actually in the time of year where they're trying to build up their reserves for their migrations. So if you are interested in helping your local hummingbirds, put out some feeders for them. They will greatly appreciate it. Uh, in terms of 
what I did see in the hive, Queen Marka's brood laying is still out of this world. Um, I'm so glad that I didn't pinch her in her first year because uh, this is something that I think I've talked about before. So many people are like, oh, your queen's not doing well, get rid of her, get a new one. And a lot of people will actually recommend that you get a new queen as soon as she's two years old. Um, and, and the logic behind it is the whole, you know, the first year and the second year should be the best egg laying years of your queen's life. Because that's when they're most, they're younger, they still have a ton of sperm that they've stored up. They're not like running low on reserves kind of thing. Um, but I've never liked that because I'm sentimental and I love my queens. I name them for God's sake. So, you know, and I thought, okay, you're being sentimental You need to toughen up if it comes to it, which is fair enough. But when I was considering getting rid of Queen Marka last year because she stopped laying, my teacher said to me, no, wait, you know, um, sometimes the genetics will make them stop earlier in the summer than you'll usually see. It's her first year, you know, give her a chance, uh, see what she does for you and then decide next year. And that was the perfect advice because not only did she make it through winter, but she has been an absolute bombshell this year. Just the tightest, most beautiful brood pattern Um, right up there with my Saskatraz queen, which I know I keep talking about. But those Saskatraz bees are like nothing I've ever seen before. I'm just so thrilled that I went ahead and I got that package. And I'm probably going to get another one next year for the top bar hive if I don't have anyone move in if a swarm doesn't move in before the winter, which is doubtful, honestly, um, I'll get a Saskatraz package and I'll dump them in there and hope that they uh, take to it because, I mean, everything that they've done has just been amazing. Incredible wax build, incredible honey production. The majority of my honey came from them. You know, um, they are actually pretty docile. I haven't seen any of the aggression I've heard about. They're beautiful to look at. The queen's beautiful. Uh, She's laying so perfectly I'm just really happy with them so fingers crossed that that all continues because of course the big test will be the winter which I'm trying not to think about um in other hive news I picked up a second mentee which is what I'm calling them I think you know if I'm a mentor they're my mentee right so uh this is a really lovely woman who is in quite a unique situation. I'm very excited about working with her. Um, So what's unique about her situation is she has had bees for three years and she had the same bees for two years, but this past winter, they sadly died. It actually kind of sounds like they absconded, probably due to uh, varroa mites. So this year she put a package in but what's unique about her is she doesn't work her hives so she got into it because her brother is a beekeeper and I think he is mainly a honey producer and she thought it would be a great hobby to do um, because she loves bees and she's been you know seeing all the news about how honeybees are dying out and, and we need to do something so she thought okay great I can help the honeybees and I can do a hobby that my brother cares about so we can bond. Well, as it turns out, (laughs) 
I got the impression from what she said that her brother is very much one of those, okay, here's the equipment, here's how you do everything, I'm going to do everything for you, and then I'm going to leave you to it. So she felt that she wasn't really learning how to beekeep. And she actually has been getting honey harvests every year, but because her brother would come out, just take the honey supers, take them back to his place, extract the honey for her, and then she would like bottle it and everything like that. So again, she felt like she wasn't really part of the process. And she had done a class. She actually went to um, one of the classes that my teacher, Laura Urban, has held, obviously before the pandemic, where we could meet in person and gather in groups. Um, And she found it very overwhelming which is completely understandable because I think when you come to beekeeping, I'm sure a lot of you have felt the same. The sheer wealth of information in front of you is absolutely tremendous. And the learning curve is so steep. And it's not just like, here's the hive and then put bees in it and then just do one or two things. And that's all you have to do. It's constant, like learning the biology of bees, learning all about varroa mites, deciding on different treatments, deciding on ways to test for varroa mites. And then you also, you have people who are like, this is how you keep bees. No, this is how you keep bees. Well, I disagree because I've been doing it for 50 years and we do it this way. Well, I've been doing it for 67 years and we do it this way. And it's just, there's so much and it's coming from all sides and it's very um, hard to figure out what's correct and then what's going to work for you. And then on top of it, she has the added pressure of she already has these bees, she already has the hives and she wants to help them. So uh, when I went out to meet with her, I went into the hives and as is always the case lately, um, I immediately got attacked and stung. So I was hoping that we were still in the dearth, but I was hoping that they wouldn't be as testy as my bees because she just has one hive on a, and she has a couple of acres. So there's not hives nearby. And I was kind of hoping that they wouldn't um, be responding to robbing hate behavior or they wouldn't feel as cranky as I imagine my girls do because they know that those other hives are right nearby. Um, but the biggest issue really was just that they're in a cover Uh, the measurement between the inner cover and the outer cover was off and so they had filled it with burr comb and so I go in I open that up the comb opens the scent of honey fills the air the bees are you know annoyed and of course they attack me and I got stung on my wrist and it was kind of a it wasn't fun so anyway I didn't get to work them but I did peek into the brood box uh, as again she'd reached out to someone for help and they'd come over and they'd done all the work for her so she didn't learn anything so they came out and they put treatments in the hive and gave her advice about when to put the next honey super on and all this kind of stuff but again she felt outside of the process and and that's not what she wants so um I didn't really get to work with them but from what I saw actually uh things are looking pretty good in there my biggest issue is going to be like I uh, the person who came out and put the treatment down did not do a mic test. And that bothers me because it's entirely possible that they didn't need the treatment. They also doubled up the treatments. They used two different products at the same time or like back to back. And again, don't really like that, particularly if you're not testing. Like, what's the point? Like, I, you know, we don't give antibiotics to people because they might get something you we give antibiotics when we know they have a bacterial infection 
Um, so that wasn't great. And also that could be why they were cranky as well, because one of the treatments was a uh, formic acid. Uh, some of the brand names like Mitaway or uh, Quick Strips. Um, and that can make them cranky. So, um, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of that. And then also, um, because she doesn't work the hive, like she's never done an inspection, those frames are absolutely glued together with so much propolis that it's going to be a freaking nightmare to go through. But I am so eager to back, get back in there. Um, I actually finally bit the bullet and I bought some beekeeping gloves because I like to wear my nitrile gloves and I can double them up, but I can still get stung even through the doubles. And that's not really an issue for me when I work my hives because my girls are sweet natured and I can tell when things are off with them and I know to back out. But when I'm out helping someone with their hives, that's when I've got stung the most. And, um, some of that is because I don't know the bees and sometimes it's because they are just mean bees and then other times it's because you know everyone's time is precious if I'm there to do a job I don't really want to back out just because I got stung a couple of times unless it's a really bad situation I want to stick with it get the job done as quickly as possible and get out so when I was with this recent person she had a pair of beekeeping gloves which were 10 times nicer than any I've seen before. So most of the ones I've seen before just look like gauntlets as if you have no dexterity in them at all. These ones that she actually let me wear for a while because I needed more protection to finish up what I was doing. Um, they're actually very flexible leather and I really liked that the sleeves go all the way up past my elbow. And so I was like, oh, this is great. So I started looking into the gloves and I feel like an idiot because... I start looking into these gloves and you can get super affordable ones that are so nice and have really good reviews. So I think I spent like $15 on a pair of um, goat skin leather gloves uh, with like the sleeves that go all the way up and are elastic and I'm really, really pleased with them. So I'm not going to wear them always, but for when the bees are cranky or when I'm doing something that I know is going to upset them or if I'm working on someone else's hive... I'm definitely going to be using those. Uh, it made a huge difference. And finally, because I realize I'm sort of droning on here, um, <laughs> I staggered out of bed on Sunday afternoon. Like it was 12.30 by the time I got out of bed. I don't know what happened. I slept for 12 hours. It was magic. And I come downstairs and um, Henry tells me, Henry, my husband, tells me, that um, a honeybee flew down to my whippet, Chappie, and stung him on the leg. And we're not sure if it like flew down, Chappie nosed it and it stung defensively, or if it flew down, stung him, and then he responded, but he ate it. And my sweet husband was watching him like a hawk to make sure that he didn't have a reaction. Because as far as we know, this is the first time he's ever been stung by a bee. Um, I gave him some Benadryl just to be on the safe side. Thankfully, he was fine. But um, I was joking to Henry that um, I'd have to burn the hives down because how dare they attack my sweet little man. Um, but actually, uh, I have consoled myself by deciding that clearly this couldn't be one of my bees. My bees are perfect. It had to be a neighborhood bee because... <laughs> yes, because my bees are perfect and all other bees are 
everyone else's problem. So I don't know. But anyway, uh, Henry was joking that I had to choose between my two great loves, uh, Chappie and Honeybees. You will notice that my husband was not mentioned in those two great loves. Uh, but I just thought it was funny. So yeah, if you um, if your dogs get stung, just keep an eye on them. And then if you're worried, give them Benadryl. But unless you're seeing, you know, I checked like his tongue wasn't swelling, his mouth wasn't swelling. Um, he wasn't even really bothering the sting site. If, if all of that looks good, just keep an eye on them. Um, thankfully, he didn't have any big response. Thank goodness. And that's good to know for future reference. Okay, so enough about the madness that is my current existence. Let's crack on with The Lives of Bees by Thomas Seeley. And today we're going to be covering chapter eight, which is all about food collection, which is super timely considering that we're in a dearth right now and the bees are really working especially hard to find pollen and nectar to bring back to feed their brood. Chapter eight opens with the following quote, which is by Thomas Smeebert, and it's from his book, The Wild Earth Bee, which was published originally in 1851. Much have I marvelled at the fabulous skill with which thou trackest out thy dwelling cave, winging thy way with seeming careless will from mount to plain o'er lake and winding wave. Then Seeley opens the chapter with some rather nifty little facts about honeybee food collection. So to start with, forager bees fly as far as 9.7 miles, which is 14 kilometres, to gather pollen, nectar or both. On average, a colony will have several thousand worker bees in use as foragers, which is about one third of the total colony population. A colony must constantly monitor internal and external hive conditions to maximise food collection and storage. And this chapter looks into these conditions, the internal and external conditions, and how wild colonies end up meeting seasonal challenges when it comes to acquiring enough food. The first section of the chapter is called The Economy of a Wild Colony. And Seeley points out that there are four key resources that every honeybee colony requires. Pollen, nectar, water and tree resin or propolis. Pollen is perhaps the most crucial of these resources as it's the primary food source for the brood. It contains essential amino acids, fats, vitamins and minerals. It also prevents the hypopharyngeal glands, which are the glands that allow nurse bees to produce brood food, from atrophying. This appears to be why pollen is stored right by the brood. It increases access to it by the nurse bees who use it to feed and nurture the developing generation. And I mean, that just makes perfect sense, right? You want your food storage right at hand to maximize how quickly and efficiently you can feed the babies. So a forager who returns to the hive with pollen will immediately go to the brood area and search around the margins for an empty cell. She'll then spend approximately 10 seconds carefully and thoroughly emptying her pollen pants, which is not the scientific term, but my preferred term for them. And the result is a neat, tidy band of pollen cells around the brood nest. And you're probably familiar with this because when we talk about 
looking at a frame and assessing what we're seeing, we often talk about the rainbow pattern, which is sort of the archetypical perfect pattern of brood. So the central semicircle would be predominantly brood and then the um, like row above it would be pollen and then on the edges or the outermost row is the honey. For those foragers who have sought nectar for the colony, they return with noticeably swollen abdomens. So you can hang out by your hives and you can use a camera or if you can get close enough, you can keep an eye out and you can spot the foragers that return because they are noticeably bigger in the abdomen. And you'll see this and um, those foragers could be holding nectar or water. And both of these liquids will end up being disgorged into the waiting mouths of nest bees who then take them deeper into the hive for storage. An interesting fact is that receiver bees are predominantly middle-aged and you might recall in previous chapters that a number of key roles in the hive do appear to be done by middle-aged bees. So we talked previously about bees that work with propolis and they tended to be middle-aged as well. So that point stood out to me. Those receiver bees that get nectar, they might immediately turn around and distribute it to other bees uh, that are hungry, but most of it will be stored for future use. Water receiving bees will either spread droplets over the combs if the nest requires cooling, or they'll give it directly to the hardworking nurse bees who need it for hydration and for brood food production. In chapter five, we learned that honeybees collect tree resin to seal holes and cracks within the nest area, as well as to coat the walls and floors of wild nests or wild nesting cavities due to its antimicrobial properties that seem to assist with overall colony health and hygiene. This resin collection is most often seen in late summer and early fall, and the bees who collect it bring it back in their little pollen pants. Seeley decided to examine just how much pollen and nectar is collected by a colony in a year and therefore figure out how much energy is expended on this endeavour. As has been consistently noted throughout this book, most studies on the subject have focused on managed colonies, so there's very little data on the food collection habits of wild honeybees. To correct this gap in the literature, Seeley decided to focus his study on unmanaged colonies that he calls simulated wild colonies or SWC for brevity. And these consist of colonies kept in hives the size of natural nest cavities that he would then monitor via weighing once per week for a three-year period. But otherwise, he does not mess with those colonies. He's not in there inspecting. He's not taking anything from them. He is purely weighing them. The location of this study was New Haven, Connecticut, and it was done in the 1980s. New Haven is about 250 miles east of Ithaca, so not very far from where Seeley has done a lot of his other um, studies. So Thomas Seeley noted that his colony populations ranged from a minimum of about 8,000 adult bees in March to a maximum of 30,000 adult bees in May to June. 
the biomass for this number of adult bees is around one to four kilograms or 2.2 to 8.8 pounds. This is a critical data point as Seeley intended to ascertain the colony's food reserves based on the weight of the nest and he'd therefore need to know the weight of the bees themselves as well as the nest to reach an accurate total. So he calls the sum of colony mass, food reserves and nest weight the hive weight. From September to April, when the colonies collected very little or even no food, the hive weight naturally decreased at a steady rate as the bees worked their way through their food stores. On average, the total mass of food consumed over winter was about 25 kilograms or 55 pounds, uh, with one kilogram or two pounds being pollen and the rest being honey. Calculating food consumption during the warmer seasons, which is late April to late September in New York and New England, which were the areas of the study, is much more complicated to ascertain. For one, the colony is expanding rapidly with brood production and the resources used for the conversion of food to baby bees is not represented in losses of hive weight. Secondly, forage varies considerably over this period of time, especially due to the vagaries of weather and thus figuring out exactly what's being used uh, as it comes in versus what's being stored or what's being taken from storage becomes a little trickier. That said, during this study, the summer had an extended period of cool and wet weather, which allowed Seeley to figure out summertime rate of food storage via the drops in hive weight, which ranged from 1 to 4 kilograms or 2.2 to 8.8 pounds per week and average 2.5 kilograms or 5.5 pounds per week. If you multiply... <laughs> If you multiply this average, 2.2 kilograms or 5.5 pounds, by 22 weeks, which is the summer season of late April to late September, you end up with a total of 55 kilograms or 120 pounds, which equals the total mass of resources consumed. In order to ascertain what portion of this food storage used is pollen, Seeley posits that it can be estimated by considering the fact that it takes around 130 milligrams, which is 0.004 ounces of pollen to produce a single bee. And the average colony population is 30,000 bees consistently throughout the summer. We know that worker bees in the summer live an average of one month, which gives us an estimate of around 150,000 bees produced over the five month summer period. Because if a colony population remains at a steady rate of 30,000 bees, then we multiply that by five to get the total. So 150,000 bees multiplied by 130 milligrams of pollen which is what's used to produce each bee, that gives us a total pollen consumption of 20 kilograms or 44 pounds over the summer period. And that absolutely blew my mind when I first read that. In summary, the yearly food consumption of a wild colony, at least in Seeley's area of study, is approximately 20 kilograms or 44 pounds of pollen and 60 kilograms or 132 pounds of honey. 
So that's the 25 kilograms, 55 pounds in winter, plus the 35 kilograms or 77 pounds in summer. These are estimates and the numbers will be affected by things such as forage, local climate and colony size. You know, a larger colony will need more food. But what's interesting is that the estimates of food consumptions for colonies that are managed for honey production are dramatically higher, which is what we would expect to see. So colonies that are managed for primarily honey production will rear as many as 250,000 bees annually and consume about 20 to 35 kilograms or 44 to 77 pounds of pollen and 60 to 80 kilograms or 132 to 176 pounds of honey per year. Looking at this sheer wealth of food consumption and storage, how many foraging trips are needed to procure all of this bounty? And again, Celia is going to wow us with some math. So buckle in, get your calculators ready, put on your algebra hats. I'm going to bomb through this and hope I don't mess it all up. So as we just discussed, the average load of pollen weighs 15 milligrams or 0.0005 ounces. And I just realized we didn't discuss that. Sorry, we discussed pollen needed to raise a bee. So scrap that, start again. The average load of pollen that a forager will bring back is 15 milligrams or 0.005 ounces. So if we multiply this by the yearly pollen total of 20 kilograms or 44 pounds, we can see that about 1.3 million foraging trips are needed. The average flight distance, which is their and back, so out to foraging area and then back to the hive, is 4.5 kilometers or 2.8 miles. And a flight will cost the bee about 6.5 joules per kilometer. Pollen has an average value of 14,250 joules per gram. So we can figure out that the total flight cost of each trip, um, I'm sorry, We can figure out the total flight cost of each trip by multiplying 3.8 by 10 to the power of 7 joules. And this gives an approximate energy return ratio of 8 to 1 when collecting pollen. (laughs) Using similar maths, Seely estimates that the production of 60 kilograms of honey requires about 3 million foraging trips. And that gives an energy return ratio of 10 to 1 when collecting nectar. And as a quick side note, I just want to clarify what Seely means when he talks about energy return ratio, sometimes written as ratio of energy return. So what is that? And the simplest way to describe it is it's how much energy is gained versus how much energy is spent. So in this case, it's looking at how much energy is being gained in each foraging trip and how much is being spent during this foraging. So in the 10 to 1 ratio, 1 is how much energy a bee is burning, is using up, but 10 is how much they are gaining during that energy expenditure. So this means that foraging, despite being energy intensive over time, provides a net gain for each bee and therefore the colony as a whole. 
simply put even more, if I can, (laughs) how much do you have to spend to get something? If you get 10 things, but it only costs you one, that's a profit versus a loss. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about energy return ratio or ratio of energy return. Looking at these figures, we can see that honeybee colonies living in areas with cold winters, because remember these studies are done in New England, must do an enormous amount of work in order to find and store enough food for the cold months. And I'm just going to quote Seeley directly here. Each colony can be thought of as an organism that weighs one to five kilograms, two to 10 pounds, rears 150,000 bees and consumes some 20 kilograms or 44 pounds of pollen and 60 kilograms or 132 pounds of honey each year. And you can go to page 194 to 195 for a little bit more information there. So altogether, This represents some 4 million foraging trips and over 20 million kilometers or 12 million miles traveled. Knowing this, it's pretty clear that natural selection has led to this great skill in food collection. This next section is called a vast scope of operation and... I wrote in my notes here, yay, more maths, I say while weeping bitterly. So brace yourself. This is a a maths heavy installment, I guess. Um, A honeybee colony can forage over an area of more than 100 square kilometers or 40 square miles. Seeley points out that the ability for a bee to fly around 60 kilometers or 3.6 miles from home at a rate of 30 kilometers or 18 miles per hour. Oh, sorry, that just gets me. 18 miles per hour flight, that's pretty good. Um, and this is equivalent to a human flying around 600 kilometers or 360 miles. So that's pretty impressive. He goes on to mention previous studies that tracked honeybee foraging trips by marking foragers in their hives with paint, radioactive isotopes, fluorescent powder or genetic colour markers. These bees would then be captured in the field as they foraged and the distance they had flown from their home hive could then be ascertained by their hive identifying marker. Another study would capture bees in the field and glue tiny metal ID discs to them and they would then install magnets at the hive entrance. So as the foragers returned, those discs would be removed and the researchers could then look at how far that bee had flown. And I thought that was really cool and I can't quite wrap my mind around sitting somewhere and just gluing little tiny mini discs to bees. That must have been very fiddly work. Now, these studies are mentioned because overall they demonstrated that most foragers were traveling within two kilometers or 1.2 miles of their hives. If no closer flowers were available, they would fly as far as 14 kilometers or 8.7 miles to find pollen and nectar. In 1979, Seeley and his friend and colleague, Kirk Vischer started their own study in an attempt to get an accurate view of the foraging activity of a wild honeybee colony. They decided to ascertain where foragers were going by observing the waggle dances of returning foragers. 
This technique was pioneered by Dr. Herta Naffel, I think is how you pronounce her last name. It's K-N-A-F-F-L in 1948 to 1950 and is surprisingly accurate. The only downside that needs to be considered is that uh, watching these waggle dances does not give a reading of all foraging sites as honeybees will only waggle dance for the most profitable sites where uh, it's such a good resource that they're trying to enlist their sisters to help them exploit it. Still, Seeley chose this method because it gives a good spatial scale of a colony's foraging area. So what he did was he set up an observation hive with a volume of 40 litres or 10.6 gallons, which is the average volume of wild nest cavities. They then set up the hive entrance to direct all returning bees to the glass observation area, which they called the dance floor, so that they would be able to see the waggle dances as they were performed. They installed a colony of around 20,000 bees with a queen and some drones and moved the hive to the Arno forest where it was placed within a hut. Observations were taken from 8am to 5pm and manually um, they then manually recorded data from one bee at a time chosen at random. For each bee they noted four key things. The angle relative to vertical of her waggle runs the duration of her waggle runs, the colour of her pollen loads, if any, and the time of day of her dance. This allowed them to estimate where she was foraging and whether she was sourcing pollen or nectar. They also carefully noted her recruited target on the map, allowing them to eventually ascertain what were the most bountiful areas of forage for that colony. Overall, 1,871 dancing bees were observed during four nine-day periods throughout the summer of 1980. These bees foraged both close to the hive and in a wider area. The most common distance travelled was 0.7 kilometres or 0.4 miles. The average was 2.3 kilometres or 1.4 miles. And the furthest was 10.9 kilometres or 6.8 miles. As predicted, the average distance travelled changed throughout the summer in response to the amount of forage available. Bees would travel further when local sources were poor. Most noteworthy was the discovery that 95% of the colony's food resources covered an area greater than 113 square kilometres or 43 square miles. That's huge. You could ask if this study was exceptional in its results, but looking at studies conducted by other researchers in disparate areas have yielded very similar results. So one conducted by Herta Kaffel, who I mentioned previously in 1953, showed that 95% of the 2,456 dances that they recorded led to food sources less than two kilometers or 1.2 miles away. She also observed that bees had discovered bountiful food sources as far away as five to six kilometers, which is three to 3.6 miles, and even nine to 10 kilometers, which is 5.4 to six miles away. In another study that was conducted in Sheffield, England, so very different climate, by Madeleine Beekman and Francis L. 
L.W. Ratniak or Ratniks. Oh, I can't pronounce this. It will be on my uh, blog for those of you who have better pronunciation than I do. And they conducted this study during the Ling Heather bloom, which is a particularly uh, bountiful source of nectar for the bees. And the study showed that the colonies studied their foragers would travel as far as five to 10 kilometers, which is 3.1 to 6.2 miles away. Half of all waggle dancers observed represented sites of forage more than six kilometers or 3.6 miles away from the hive. And 10% represented areas more than 9.5 kilometers or 5.9 miles away. So these results demonstrate how important long distance flying is for a bee colony to source food. So now we move on to the section entitled treasure hunting by the bees. To maximize the benefit of foraging within their range, honeybees must be able to find the most bountiful, bountiful sites and do so before other colonies have taken those resources. So this led Celie to ask, how capable is a colony of surveying its environment? How quickly can they detect a new patch of food-rich flowers? To answer this question, Celie took four colonies and set up what he calls a treasure hunt using lush patches of flowering buckwheat, which is the treasure here. He dispersed these patches within a large forest and then measured each colony's success in finding these rich food sources. The forest in question was Yale Myers Forest, which is a 7,840 acre or eight, excuse me, or 3,213 hectares in size. And it's very similar in terms of forage to the Arnaud Forest. Seedy clustered his four hives close together and then dispersed a total of six buckweed patches, each of which was 100 square metres or 1,078 square feet in size. These were placed a very distance of 1 to 3.6 kilometres, which is 0.6 to 2.2 miles from the hive cluster. The bloom of these buckwheat patches was timed so that it happened when there was very little other forage available. So late June was the first time and then again in mid-August. Choosing a colour to mark each patch, Seeley would mark foraging bees found on the flowers, around 115 total for each area, and then return to the hives to see which foragers were coming back and which hive they were returning to. His results show that the colonies had a high chance of discovering those patches at 1,000 metres or 0.6 miles and 2,000 metres or 1.2 miles. But interestingly, none of the hives found the patches at 3,200 to 3,600 metres, which is 2 to 3.7 miles. To put these results in perspective... A patch of flowers about half the size of a tennis court represents less than one 125,000 of the area within a two kilometre or 1.2 mile circular area from the hive and that the colonies studied had a 50% or higher chance of discovering a flower patch of this size located within two kilometres of 
the hive. So basically, it's not that big of an area, if you think of half the size of a tennis court, in a very large area, a 1.2 mile circular area around those colonies, but they still had a better than 50% chance of discovering those flowers when they came into bloom. The next section is called choosing among food sources. Discovering food sources is clearly an important trait of the honeybee, but how does a bee choose which patch to visit and then how frequently? In order to maximise their resources, a foraging bee must choose the richest food sources after discovery. In the previous study mentioned where Seeley and Vischer observed the waggle dances of foragers returning to an observation hive, they noticed the time of each dance and it's now known that the longer the waggle dance, the richer the food source. These longer dances were noted on the map, indicating the colony's most attractive food areas for each day. These results demonstrated that the richest food sources can change on a daily basis. I'm not going to compile all the results here, although you can find them on page 205 if you're interested, but to kind of sum them up and at least give one example, one day they noted that the main area of recruitment was 0.5 kilometers or 0.3 miles south-southeast and south-southwest of the hive, with one site being 2 to 4 kilometers or 1.2 to 2.4 miles south-southwest. The very next day, however, the main focus of the foragers was now an area 0.5 kilometres or 0.3 miles northwest, with a previous day's area of interest now resulting in few, if any, waggle dances. And this makes sense if we consider the nature of flowers, how nectar and pollen is affected by weather and previous pollinator visits. So if it had been hugely popular one day, they might have taken as many resources from it as they could. And now something else was a richer resource of nectar and pollen for them. Although this study yielded fascinating results, Seeley decided to enact a separate study that looked at the amount of foragers exploiting different forage sites. To do this, he marked all 4,000 worker bees from a colony and then moved them 240 kilometres or 150 miles to Cranberry Lake Biological Station, abbreviated as CLBS. This area consists primarily of forests, bogs and lakes and is not a rich source of food for the bees. In fact, no wild colonies live in that area due to this lack of food. And Seeley needed an area with no natural food sources so that his colony of very carefully labelled bees could not be lured away from the two feeders that he set up as part of his study method. These feeders were set up north and south of the hive at a distance of 400 metres or 0.25 miles. Initially, they were both filled with a 30% sugar syrup, which was attractive enough to lure in foragers, but not so rich that it would trigger recruitment behaviour. Once the bees had been trained to find these feeders, Seely then began his experiment. Starting at 7.30am, he set up the north feeder with a 30% solution and the south feeder with a 65% sugar solution. By noon, the colony had 91 bees returning from the south site and just 12 from the north. Seely then switched the feeders, so the richer solution is now in the north, and the poorer solution is now in the south. And by 4pm, the bees had switched their focus back to the richer source of sugar. He then repeated the exact same experiment again the following day. 
the results show that a colony does in fact track the richest forage sites and they can switch focus quite quickly, taking just four hours to completely reverse their original focus of forage. And now we move on to a section that is particularly timey, timely. It is called honey robbing in the wild. <laughs> and um, if you remember last episode, I did speak about robbing behavior in honeybees, as well as my recent experience with it. Um, we're still in the dearth, but fingers crossed, goldenrod is blooming in other areas. So hopefully soon we will get that full flow going. And in this section, Celie points out that stealing honey, despite the potential fatal consequences for the robber bees, is worth the risk when you consider that nectar has an average sugar concentration of 40%, whereas honey has an average concentration of 80%. Also, a forager might need to visit hundreds of flowers to gather one load of nectar, whereas a robber bee need only go to one area one hive and consume as much honey as she possibly can. Robbing is an example of intraspecific kleptoparasitism, bleh, kleptoparasitism, <laughs> aka parasitism by theft. Celie notes that it's also a mechanism of interspecific parasitism because it fosters the transmission of parasites and pathogens between colonies and I'm really glad I have my pop guard on this mic this microphone because I'm just like parasites and pathogens varroa mites will readily hitch a ride on a robber bee and American fowl brood spores can also be transmitted hive to hive in this manner Seely points out that to truly understand how much robbing behavior is contributing to the transmission of disease and parasites between colonies we first need to figure out how long these agents of disease can survive in dead or dying colonies, because these are the ones most likely to be robbed, as well as how quickly they will be found by robber bees. In an attempt to answer this question, uh, in particular about the discovery of weakened colonies, Seeley and one of his PhD students, David T. Peck, set up an experiment to determine how quickly unguarded honey is discovered by honeybees. He chose two sets of test subjects, wild colonies within the Arno Forest and five managed apiaries at Cornell University. The wild colonies were spaced an average of... Um, oh, excuse me, the wild colonies are spaced an average of one colony per kilometer or per 0.6 miles, whereas the managed colonies are arranged in pairs on hive stands spaced less than one meter or three feet away from the next pair. Unguarded honey was provided in robbing test boxes, abbreviated as RTBs, made by cutting a Langstroth hive body in half and adding a wall floor and lid. The entrance opening of each RTB was just 2.5 centimetres or one inch in diameter and spherical in shape. And they drilled one of these into each end of the box. Each RTB was given one frame of capped honey and three frames of older aromatic comb. During October of 2015, frost had killed off most of the flowers in the area, so the bees were keen to find another food source and thus more likely to consider robbing from other hives. 10 RTBs were placed in the Arno Forest at this time and 10 were placed at the apiary site in Ithaca. 
The RTBs were hung from high tree limbs to avoid being discovered by bears. And all boxes were placed about one kilometre or 0.6 miles apart, which mimics the spacing of wild colonies. At the apiary site, the RTBs were hung in trees or placed on cement boxes, as bears were not a risk in this area. Every RTB that was placed at the apiary site was robbed within 24 hours on the first day of good weather. All the RTBs in the Arno Forest were also discovered, but it took 10 full days of good weather for this to happen. Seeley had expected the results seen in the managed apiary, but he didn't anticipate that all of the RTBs would be located in the forest by the wild colonies. This leads to the conclusion that even in the wild, parasite and pathogen transmission can occur via robbing. Seeley goes on to mention a time that he had the opportunity to observe robbing bees, which was in May 2017. He'd left out a hive with two frames of capped honey in the hope of attracting a swarm and instead discovered it being robbed by honeybees. So seeing his chance to observe their behaviour up close, he moved the frames of honey into an observation hive, which he set up in a shed nearby. Rapidly, the robber bees found this hive and began to take from it again. What Celia observed over a two-day period is that robber bees will not uncap a honey cell in order to have a personal honey source. She will actually walk over capped cells and join a group of other robbers drinking from an open cell. When open cells have been fully plundered, capped cells are then actually opened extremely carefully. In fact, the worker will cut open just a tiny hole that she can just about fit her little tongue through in order to lap up the honey. Over time, other bees will join her. They'll make their own little hole in the wax capping until it is fully opened. And what this means is that robber bees spend the largest time in a hive standing closely together, often touching and rarely moving at all as they drink. On average, Seeley noted that the robber bees spent 12 minutes inside the hive on each trip. And being so close together and standing so still, we can easily see how varroa mites can move from the comb onto the waiting bees. In fact, some of you might have seen that absolutely shocking video that was doing the rounds last year where someone um, was observing a honeybee colony and you can see a varroa mite on the comb leap up onto a bee's leg just shockingly fast and then disappear and burrow into the bee's body. And it just demonstrates that very little time is needed for a varroa mite to jump onto a bee and now we know robber bees are standing there so still potentially in a colony that died because of a varroa mite infestation and we could see how quickly varroa could get all over those robber bees and those robber bees are inadvertently bringing them back to their colony so if we ever wondered how varroa mites moved from managed colonies to those in the wild here's a really good example of transmission Um, It has been theorised before that it was uh, managed colonies that people let swarm, which is possible, but it could also have been robbing bees or just colony drift where a bee ends up in a different hive. Seeley notes that he was initially surprised to find that Varroa had managed to completely infiltrate wild colonies of honeybees. But now, knowing what he does about the ability of bees to so quickly locate colonies that are ripe to be stolen from, and then how long those bees spend inside the hives, 
he states that henceforth he will only be surprised to find a wild colony that does not have varroa mites. And that is the end of the chapter. Um, So next episode will be chapter nine, which is all about temperature control. And yes, we've been really getting into the nitty gritty these last couple of chapters. And yes, my brain is melting. And yes, it's a lot of maths. But oh my goodness, I've only just started the next chapter. And just the first couple of pages, the information is absolutely incredible. Uh, It opens up talking about uh, the temperatures needed by bees just to move their flight muscles, um, how sensitive the brood is to temperature and temperature variation. It's really, really cool and fascinating stuff. And if you weren't already in love with your honeybees, you will be after learning even more about their incredible biology. So thank you as always for sticking with me. Um, You might have noticed that I've got to this point now where if I stumble over my words a bit, I'm not really editing them out. And um, it's some of it's laziness, honestly. And then um, some of it is just, you know, I am a flawed, I am a flawed individual. Um, I hope it's not too bad. Let me know if the sound quality is off or if you want me to edit more or whatever. Just give me a heads up if you think I can improve something. I love hearing from you guys. I have had some feedback that uh, people are enjoying these reviews, which is awesome. Thank you so much. Um, It really makes me feel like all of this hard work is worthwhile. It is honestly a little embarrassing by how tricky it is for me some days to sit and focus and condense this material. But it is absolutely fascinating stuff. Um, Thomas Seeley is by far my beekeeping hero. And um, actually, I was talking to my husband the other day about whether... um, he would consider moving to a different university if they had a job that, you know, was more appealing or better funding or a area of interest that he really wanted to focus on. And I was like, okay, just, you know, for anyone who, do, who isn't in academia, um, there's a hiring freeze on due to the pandemic. So this is all just conjecture. But I said to him, you know, if, if they opened up tomorrow and you could go to any university, just list off some ones that you know, catch your eye. And he mentioned Cornell. And I was like, oh, Cornell, that rings a bell. Isn't that in New York? And he's like, yeah, uh, that's where Thomas Seeley works. And I was just like, oh my God, you're right. So of course now I'm just like, oh wow, wouldn't that be incredible if one day we ended up at Cornell? Of course, by the time we end up there, Seeley would probably have retired. But in my experience, scientists don't ever really retire. (laughs) They become emeritus faculty which is basically like they kind of are retired but they still hang around and do research and um get like you know all the youths coming up to them and being like tell us more about your incredible studies so um there I am dreaming about Cornell so yes um Thomas Seeley is a god among beekeepers and scientists we'll keep on with his book um I will have the next chapter for you in the next episode as well as updates about my colonies and hopefully at that point I will have managed to get back into them because I really need to do a mite check. I am I am overdue for a mite check and I'm feeling very guilty about it but there's no point going in there if they're just going to steal from each other. Um, I have set up some new hive stands so I'm going to start moving some of the colonies a little further apart 
Um, so watch this space because I need to look into that. I need to make sure that I move them appropriately because the tricky part with moving a hive is the foragers will return to the original location. So you need to choose wisely when you move and how you move and I will have more information on that when I read into it. So as always, you can find me on all the social medias. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter. Instagram is where I hang out, is where I post most of my pictures. Um, it's my favorite place to be. Um, and then obviously I'm going to put the website in the episode description like I always do. All of the information discussed today is there. I will also have pictures, some of which are from the book, of various graphs and figures that will really sort of help condense some of the information discussed today um and um it's worth checking out because you know sometimes the math is a little bit much to remember so if you want to double check anything it's going to be there on the blog so thank you so much for sticking with me thank you for tuning in today uh thank you to everyone who uh interacts with me on various social media sites whether you're just liking my posts or sending me a message I really appreciate it love to hear from you guys as always you can reach me by leaving me a message here on the blog on Instagram or you can email me directly at homesteadhensandhoney or one word at gmail.com in the meantime stay safe out there keep your masks on wash your hands uh stay inside if you can and um I hope things are kind of improving for everyone as we adjust to this new strange pandemic world that we live in and as always hug your hands and then wash your hands take care of yourselves bye-bye